0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number
1: 48 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Redis. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own and not that my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment. And I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out our recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So as you can tell, I still haven't recovered my voice and it got a lot worse over the weekend because I uh, coached a few football games. Uh, for my kids. And uh, there's a lot, a lot of yelling going on. And so uh, my voice is uh, pretty much gone. I, I spent the last half hour trying to get it back, but it, it it hasn't really returned. So I'm doing the best I can. So bear with me a little bit. Lots of great feedback on last week's show with co-host Tom Pazer joining me right out of Silicon Valley as we analyzed the situation over at Facebook in regards to them not replacing their chief security officer after the departure of Alex Stamos from the firm. So I had some really interesting comments on the show on, on LinkedIn and some other, other, other social media sites. Uh, specifically on LinkedIn, I had some things I wanted to go over. Richard Prescott Stearns, a, a CISO at an unnamed FinTech company, said this about the show. They have to have a CISO regarding the, the story that we did last week on Facebook. They just need to find one with s- skin thick enough to take on that role. And look, there's a lot of truth to that. And whether it's the CSO or CISO, it doesn't matter in this case it was the CSO, but you know, these types of jobs are not for the the faint of heart and we've spoken about that a lot on the show. Another comment from Jerry Mertlin, a solution principal at Salam Consulting, said this. So far, all we know is their current decision to not immediately replace the CSO and instead integrate their security staff and leadership into the different pillars of the organization. It's an incredibly large organization with physical facilities and infrastructure on almost every continent. A decentralized model may make more sense, but either way, all we have is speculation and opinion on what works and what doesn't, based on our own experiences in organizations that may or may not be even remotely similar to their business model, industry, and scale. I'm referring to Facebook, of course, and, and that's a very good point by Jerry. Another comment from Jabir Junusi, a security consultant at ANZ in Melbourne, Australia, and we love our, our friends down under, we got a lot of listeners down in Australia, had to say this, not so good if there is no CSO Love listening to Task Force Seven. Keep up the good work, George. Well, thank you for listening and supporting the show, Jabir. Without folks like you, there would be no show. So thanks so much for all your support. Another comment from Ruth Michinovic. I hope I pronounced that right. I gave it my best shot. It's an informa- she's an information security engineer with PayPal out of Scottsdale, Arizona. And she said that they seem to think security is better served by having an individual security focused disciplines by having individual security focused disciplines represented throughout their organization can we say silo wars without a leader who can see the whole picture each of the divisions will be rudderless in my opinion and you know I think there's there's a lot to a uh, lot to her point there um, without any kind of central place to, to make sure that there's standardization and consistency and a good governance model in place things can get a little shaky right but Drew Simonis, the deputy chief information security officer over at HP at a pilot point, Texas, had a slightly different take on the situation from the show last week. He said, well, maybe you possibly didn't understand what Facebook is doing. They are building security into their product, something that we've been clamoring for for decades. And I pray for that other companies follow suit and stop with the biggest bolt on of all times, the fully independent Security team. So it's interesting to hear different takes, especially this one from a very senior information security professional over at HP. Thanks for listening to Task Force 7 Radio. Appreciate it. Sean Ralph, who's an associate adjunct professor out of the prestigious Columbia University, had to say this about last week's show Facebook does not need a CISO, it needs a technical privacy officer and a CTO that can handle security. Very interesting comment from Academia, Uh, we had a friend of mine, Jim Alvohiera, a sales leader over at uh, IBM at uh, Duluth, Georgia said this, a very interesting discussion, both on the risk of not having a top security executive, but more interesting from my perspective, the discussion of ethics. Why did he leave? Is he is known to put his job on the line for his beliefs. That's admirable in anyone. And is there more going on there? Time will tell, and this will be a very interesting to watch as the situation evolves. So, you know, I thought the ethics piece of this story was very fascinating as well, and that's why Tom and I were covering it. Uh, thanks for all your support, Jim. I appreciate you listening, as always. And Phil Homstrom, co-founder of Pinnacle Biotech, summed it up this way. It's Facebook. Security is counter to their business model. <laughs> so, you know, look, at a minimum, that, that sort of sums up the way I think the general public views Facebook at this time, whether it's true or not, who knows what's really going on over there inside the company relative to their cybersecurity posture. But one thing's for sure, I don't think the optics are good. I don't think they're good at all. And it, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens from here. Uh, and it's going to c- continue to generate a lot of discussion. I mean, great conversation with a lot of uh, fantastic and very senior cybersecurity professionals, uh, I appreciate you all listening to the show, commenting on social media and helping to further the discussion on these very important topics. We all need to do this. And not only is it a health, healthy dialogue, but it's a lot of fun too, right? It's a lot of fun uh, talking to your peers. So uh, if you missed last week's show, I urge you to find your favorite playback medium and check it out, folks. That's episode number 47 titled, Facebook isn't replacing their CSO or CSO, sorry. Will others follow? And that's on Task Force 7 radio. So, and, and by the way, if you listen to uh, – Task Force 7 Radio uh, often, you probably already heard these episodes, but if you didn't, uh, we have we have some commentary on, on Facebook security issues on a couple other episodes. Check out episode number 27 and 28. We talk about uh, Facebook's FTC consent decree and the situation with the relationship with developer Alexander Kogan. Uh, that was a whole big 60-minute segment done on that. There, It's very interesting. and Those segments are really, uh, really good. I think there's a lot of informative stuff that you can take away, informative uh, in, you know, information from from those segments that'll help you sort of derive your opinion about what's going on now in episode number 47. So that's episodes number 27 and 28. Check it out. You can find TF7 radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google play, tune stitcher.com, player.fm, overcast.fm, listen The show's very own website at task force seven radio.com. And of course the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 Radio fixed. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Check us out, TF7 Radio Playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please, please, please don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. Thanks so much. So tonight... We have with us one of my best friends in the world, Paul Jackson, and Paul Jackson is gonna be with us straight out of Hong Kong, China. Paul Jackson is the managing director of the Asia and Asia Pacific leader for Kroll's Cyber Risk Practice based in their Hong Kong office. And I know Paul very well. He spent more than 25 years fighting the good fight as a senior cybersecurity executive in some of the region's highest levels of law enforcement, law enforcement and corporate enterprise. We have a very similar background. Maybe that's why we jive together so well. But and he, th- this background includes organizations such as the Hong Kong Police, Interpol, the U.S. Secret Service Electronic Crime Task Force, uh, Microsoft's Digital Crimes Consortium, JP Morgan Chase Bank, uh, Strauss-Friedberg, and now, of course, with Kroll. So... His list of accomplishments is really just too long for radio folks, I could go on forever and, and radio doesn't sound good when you go on. But know this, know that Paul is a computer forensics and cyber investigations expert who has run forensics and electronic crimes efforts for many of the organizations I just mentioned. And he is a very well known uh, individual in Asia, as one of the foremost go-to experts in computer forensics and incident response and investigations in the entire cybersecurity space. He's known globally, none other than Paul Jackson, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the show, brother. I appreciate you.
2: Hey, thank you, George. Thank you very much for that. Welcome.
1: So, so, what, so you're not originally from Hong Kong, right? You've, you've been in Hong Kong for now like 30 years, I think, what's, what you told me since 1988. What, what, what brought you out there? Where, where are you from and how did you actually get there?
2: Yeah, a bit, of a bit of a long story around this, George, but uh, yeah, I'm British, as you can tell from my, uh, my smooth <laughs> accent. <laughs> right, so, so I, I, I was at university doing electronics and telecommunications and uh, wondering about my future in the UK, and I'm thinking, well, I'm a bit of an outdoor guy. Don't really want to be sat in front of a, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a cubicle doing engineering at that stage of my life, and I was thinking about joining the COPS in the UK. And then, lo and behold, there I am, sat in a pub one lunchtime, as, as you do in the UK. <laughs> and, and, a, and a friend of mine walked in with a newspaper, and he dropped it on the table in front of me and said, hey, you want to be a cop? Why don't you join the Hong Kong police, or the Royal Hong Kong police, as it was known in those days? And sure enough, there was an advert in there for uh, recruitment for the, for the Royal Hong Kong police. And I thought, why the hell not? So I applied <laughs> for both jobs. Uh, funnily enough, got both jobs in the UK police and in the Hong Kong police around the same time and then it was sitting down and thinking Hong Kong Liverpool Hong Kong Liverpool (laughs) Hong Kong won out so uh, so there I was on a plane in 1988 out to Hong Kong which at that stage of my life I couldn't even have put on a map but uh, you know that's where I ended up and and I'm still here George Well, that's the thing. I mean,
1: some of the decisions that you make in life, right? When you think back then and how they actually changed the course of your entire life, your entire career. I mean, you're sitting in the pub some guy shows you a newspaper. Hey, how about you, how about you apply for this job? (laughs) You know, be a cop. And you're like, yeah, sure. uh,
2: It's crazy, right? Did you ever expect that you'd be there 30 years later? Oh, no way. But do, do you know what? Going back to that day in the pub, I still can't remember which of my friends it was who did that because I'd love to go back and shake him by the hand and buy him the best dinner in the world because uh, that was the best move I ever made. But no, I never expected to be here 30 years on. Uh, you know, they they employed us in contracts of three years at a time in the, in the Royal Hong Kong police. I thought, well, I'll go out there for three years, see Asia, have a bit of fun, and then come back and get a proper job. But it didn't turn out like that. It didn't turn out like that. Yeah, you, boy, you they speak they Chinese right well
1: how many languages you speak
2: uh, I can speak yes I can speak Cantonese uh, I wouldn't say I'm very fluent but I can get by and uh, yeah of course I vaguely speak English
1: so so you you, you were there during the the handover of uh, of Hong Kong from Britain to China now how'd you feel about that and and, and you know what made you stay on and what made you, you know stay there
2: yeah so at that time I, I just started moving into uh, technology crime policing and uh, you know, it was really—I was really getting interested in that. The mid-nineties, everything opened up in, in terms of technology. The mobile phones, internet was just going, and um, and then we had the handover in our way in 1997. And I was in the intelligence bureau, doing all sorts of work around eh, telephone tracing, should we just say? Um, and you know, I remember looking down on that rainy night in 1997 when they did the hang- handover, when Prince Charles was out there in the rain, you know, when the flags were lowered. And looking out and thinking, wow, do I really want to still be out here? And then it didn't take me long to think about it. And I thought, hell yeah, it's an adventure. And I stayed on and never regretted it. So in your view, have
1: have things changed much since the handover? I mean, uh, what do you see that's different? What do you see that's the same? Are you concer- do you have any concerns that you stayed?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is a question I get asked all the time, George, because, uh, you know, I mean, it really is a momentous time in history, isn't it? You know, uh, a whole country where you're staying in gets handed over from from Britain to well, what everyone thinks of as communist China, right? So, of course, you know, people want to know whether monumental changes. Uh, and the simple answer is no. You know, I was involved in fighting crime. I was involved in putting bad guys away, and the laws didn't change. The bad guys didn't change. I was never involved in national security matters. So, you know, it was just all to me. It was all about policing, catching the bad guys, and uh, you know, and trying to put them away. So. Reality was nothing much changed. The only thing, the bad thing that changed was our uniform. So we lost the wonderful badges with the crown on, you know, the British style <laughs> badges. They replaced with a uh, a badge with a flower on it called the Bohemia, which became the, uh, you know, the, the national en- emblem for Hong Kong. Not quite the same, right? When you're a cop, you know, a crown looks like an authority figure, a flower, mm, less so so so,
1: so do you think you know do you think that you're you know because you're involved involved in the street crime and now obviously you're in corporate and not being involved in those national security issues do you think that there's things going on that are different that you just don't have visibility into? I know this is kind of a guess I mean like like I'm asking a question that you don't know about, but do you have suspicions is what I'm trying to say
2: oh hell yeah I mean but to be honest though, it was like that when the British were here you know if we if we don't think that the British were involved in Espionage, right. whatever you want to call it, activities, then uh, we, uh, we, you know, we're deluding ourselves, right? So, of course, uh, I'm sure this, this stuff goes on at a national security level that I'm not privy to. So, um, yeah, yeah, my best guess, you know I mean, George.
1: So, what's the deal now? I mean, do you, do you see your, yourself there for the duration? And, you know, I mean, uh, what do you see for your future there as far as where you are and, and what you're doing in your career?
2: I do. So we'll talk more in a bit about the, you know, the way my career changed towards cybersecurity and cybercrime investigation. Um, but, you know, really, that was that was the trigger or the driving force behind my staying here, I guess. You know, I'd found a niche out here. I'd found something that really inspired me, that really got my juices flowing. And, you know, it just makes it all uh, highly relevant for me. Obviously, as you and I know, because we worked together for a while, I spent some time in the US, which was fabulous. It expanded my experience and, the, and my knowledge no end especially dealing with some of the incidents that we had to deal with. Um, But reality is, this is where I consider to be home now, and I can do more good out here. I think there's a dearth, just as there is anywhere in the world, Asia feels it even more so. There's a dearth of good cybersecurity people. There's a dearth of people who have that real solid experience and knowledge, and I feel like I can contribute more here, knowing the region as well as I do, and having that experience and background behind me. So this is interesting stuff. And I think a lot of people
1: that listen to this show like to hear how people pivoted to certain and certain uh, to certain jobs in their career to get themselves where they are today, you know, to be in such influential positions and positions of authority to become executives as major companies. I mean uh, I think a lot of people uh, I, you know, I used the term rudderless, I guess someone else used the term rudderless in terms of describing uh, Facebook and not having their CSO. I think a lot of people when managing their careers are rudderless, right? They don't, they really don't know where to go. They don't have a lot of guidance and people are going to find this conversation very interesting. So we got to take a little break, uh, but we're going to bring it back to talk about those things in just a few minutes. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at task force 7 that's with the number seven, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months. More information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause with some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the managing director of Kroll's Asia Pacific Cyber Risk Practice, Paul Jackson. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
0: account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation many companies think they're protected they believe using a password manager multi-factor authentication behavior-based technology password rotations or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com.
4: Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Labs Security Orchestration, Automation and Response technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Labs Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash tf7 to request a look at Inkman's soar live in action.
0: You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7 radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George रीडus.
1: Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the managing director of Kroll's Asia Cyber Risk Practice, Paul Jackson. So, Paul, you know, I want to I pick up where we, where we left off talking about your career and how you've pivoted through different jobs and, you know, how you've uh, gone from being a police officer to technology. Let's just start from the beginning. Tell me about your early days and, and the role Hong Kong police forces. what was it like there? Did did you truly start off like most of us that that did law enforcement jobs? Like I know I always started out doing street crimes and everything, but in your case, I know I've talked to you about this a few times. It it seems like water crimes, like you're out there chasing smugglers and fast boats, like the Hong Kong version of Miami Vice. I mean, that's what I have in my head.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you're exactly right, George. How cool is that? You know, you, you (laughs) you come halfway across the world to a place you've got no clue where you are uh, you know you end up being a cop and uh, the first posting they give you is uh, driving speedboats chasing smugglers uh yeah can't beat that and it was it was a bit like miami vice at times it was uh, it was crazy times in fact there were two there were two big things with the uh, with the marine police as it's called so i know in the u.s you have separate coast guards and everything like that but in hong kong it's just the hong kong police force or as it was then the royal hong kong police force and that's all there is you know there's no FBI there's no Secret Service there's no you know it's just the the Hong Kong police force a single police force and and the there's no Coast Guard so the Hong Kong police had what's called a marine police and in those days we had a big problem with smuggling between Hong Kong and China due to the difference in tax between certain electronic goods and and other products and also thefts of, of luxury vehicles from Hong Kong they were winched and put into the back of these huge speedboats with four three, 300 horsepower engines on the back of them and they'd be in china before you could blink yeah zooming across the uh, the uh, the waters to china and our job was to try and chase them in our um, in our rather slower uh, police speedboats <laughs> your slow boats yeah slow boats but actually uh, what was good in those days i think uh, health and safety didn't figure too, too much in those days and uh, we actually had had a, had a bunch of speedboats that were seized or, you know, when we arrested these guys that were seized from the smugglers and we converted them into, um, into police.
1: Oh, police. that's great. That's so, yeah, great. Fighting,
2: fighting fire with fire.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Use their own boats to chase yeah. them. That's awesome. Hey, how about, how about the technology back then? It wasn't like it is today, right? I mean, it's not like, oh, no, you know, no, I mean, if you had no, the technology it you had today it would have been more fun, you think? Uh,
2: do you know what? I'm not sure it would because, uh, I think, uh, you, you know, uh, When you're a young lad, you're coming out here and and getting to do all those things, I don't think there would have been that much smuggling going on because with technology nowadays, with GPS, with other kinds of trackers, satellite imagery, et cetera, we'd probably have had a much better handle on uh, you know where these guys were loading up these stolen goods or smuggled goods, and being able to stop them before they hit the water, so we wouldn't have had many chases. But you know, who knows? Um, what what did happen was the laws changed, and that really uh, was, and also the taxes between countries equalized, so there wasn't much profit in it anymore. So it, smuggling sort of fizzled out in the '90s. But I tell you what, it did teach me three things, George, because uh, you know, in those days the smugglers were smart, right? They 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 looked at gaps in legislation. You know, they knew that they could drive these speedboats in and they could store electric goods in these warehouses right next to the water and just throw them quickly onto the speedboats because there were no rules about where you could set up a warehouse or how you could store goods, etc. And also there were no laws about how many engines you could have on the back of the boat. You could have as many as you could fit. So there was all these gaps in legislation that made it easy for them. Then there were gaps in security. You know, it was impossible for the Hong Kong police to cover every bit of coastline. Hong Kong... It's got a huge coastline, loads of little islands and jetties all over the place. And, and then looking at gaps in enforcement, they looked at the way we did things and, and looked at ways to, you know, looked at the timings of our shifts, looked at how we, you know, police things. They were watching us as much as we were watching them. And and you know what? That's got similarities, doesn't it, with the way we handle cybercrime? Gaps in legislation, gaps in security, gaps in enforcement. Not too much different, eh, George?
1: No. And I think you got a good point there because a lot of the skills that you learn in law enforcement are transferable into the cybercrime space. Um, so what's your story? How'd you get in cybercrime? How did you make that transition? Like what, you know, what actually happened? I don't even know if I know the story.
2: Yeah. Well, it's, it really was just a change in technology. So I'd been bouncing around on speedboats and other kinds of launches for for seven years, nearly seven years. And do you know what? I'm a rugby player, as you know, George, one of these proper sports. And uh, my knees were already getting shot and, and bouncing around on the, uh, on the oceans at night was certainly doing no good to my knees. So um, probably the time was right and the technology started emerging. So the mobile phone market opened up really in Hong Kong in 1995 and six new providers, um, you know, uh, providing mobile t- uh, telephone services opened up. And the police needed a way to understand the technologies that they were using, understand how they could do cell site, get cell site records, or track the bad guys when they had mobile phones uh, through cell site triangulation, et cetera. So with my background, uh, I was asked if I would uh, head up a team that was the interface, really, with the telecoms industry. And that was my first move away from the uh, uniform policing into, into the CID, if you like, the, uh, the criminal investigation department, uh, the clothes folks. And uh, it was a great move. I, I, I suddenly found out that, hey, my technology background was actually pretty useful. And I was, you know, doing some useful things. I was achieving things. And that felt really good, you know, putting bad guys away, you know. What, what
1: technology background are you talking about?
2: Yeah, so I had a degree in electronics and telecommunications. Ah, so okay, okay. I, I hid that well in my early years in the police. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you know they're like all police forces, they keep a record of the backgrounds of the folks who join and, uh, and I was pulled into doing uh, uh, that technology stuff. And from there, it was kind of a logical move. I, I moved into, it, just before the uh, year 2000, I moved into computer security within the police. We had a crime prevention bureau in the Hong Kong police, still do have a crime prevention bureau in the Hong Kong police, but one of the teams there was the computer security unit. And our job from, I joined there in about 1998, I think it was. Um, our job was really to go around educating people who had just started to use the internet, companies who were just starting to get on board, um, you know, and educating them on the dangers of, of, of internet usage, the early viruses that were out at those times, the Trojan horses that were uh, uh, that were there, you know, that um, uh, that were pretty prolific in those days, that were allowing remote access, and and you know, just really to to help people guide them, uh, you know, educating kids, uh, you know, any kind of education you could think of. So that was a, a pretty important job, I think, in those days. And if you remember back that far, and you you certainly will, George, because you're as old as me nearly. Um, you know things like the Y2K bug, and then we had massive impact from just after the uh, year 2000 with the "I Love You" virus. Do you remember that one? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, th- that started in the Philippines. Actually, it was uh, it was written by a, a Filipino, and it was it was devastating. Can you imagine if something like that hit nowadays? You know, it was bad enough in those days, but nowadays, <laughs> with the proliferation of uh, uh, of uh, you know network devices, internet connected devices, it would be catastrophic and uh, you know all these kind of issues that we were dealing with helping companies navigate the early days of the internet and it was quite fascinating but you know again that led me into well what happens when a crime actually you know is committed how are we going to deal with it in future how are police forces going to handle investigating cybercrime? and that of course led me into the world of forensics uh, as it was just becoming um, emerging in the late 90s early 2000 and uh, just really fascinated by this there were no manuals there was hardly any training um, there were the early iterations of what became Encase, um and and very little else. You had a sleuth, top, sleuther, sort of top sleuth kit or Topsy, uh, the the the, um, the open source um, Linux-based tools, but very little else in the way of commercial tools. And you know what? We had to find out how to get information, how to get the answers ourselves. We had to move, use that most powerful of uh, forensic tools, Brain version 1.0. In order to get the answers. And it was, I loved it. It was, it was challenging and fascinating.
1: So you're talking about the challenges that you had early on as a police officer that led you into some, making some of these career decisions. But did you ever say to yourself, hey, this is where the future's at in terms of, you know, when you, talk, when you think about managing your career, or were you just kind of following the, the sort of commonsensical thing to solve crime?
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, looking back, I wish, I wish I could tell you, George, that I was that smart. <laughs> I would be able to predict the future, and hey, you know, I'd end up working all over the world doing, uh, doing cybercrime. Nah, I wish I could tell you that, but it was just fun at the time. It, it really got me interested. It got my juices flowing, and, and and it was doing a good thing. You know, I had the, uh, you know, the technical background that helped me to do this, but at the end of the day, it was just really the, the interest and the passion that I had yeah. and those working around me
1: this is interesting because i think a lot of police uh, agencies uh, around the world i know here in the united states whether it's local uh, state or federal agencies they hire people with a whole bunch of different backgrounds in terms of their educational uh, their educational background so Uh, It doesn't matter what kind of degree they have, as long as they have a a degree in a lot of places, but because they need so many different diversified skill sets in law enforcement to handle the problems that they're dealing with, uh, that, you know, people from all kinds of educational backgrounds are very, very useful. And now when you have this technical background and you combine it with this experience that you have from uh, investigations and and, and police work and street crime and, and, you know, chasing fast boats and organized crime, I mean, that's a, that's, then, then you start really developing some marketable skill sets in the cybersecurity space. Um, what, what kind of crimes were you dealing with, basically, uh, back then in Hong Kong? Like, what, what, what kind of crimes were you chasing?
2: Yeah, well, uh, you, know, and you made a good point just now about the leadership uh, that you, you learn early on in the police. And I'll come back to that later, perhaps, when we, uh, we have a conversation about uh, you know, the, the CSO that you mentioned earlier, the Facebook CSO issue. Uh, but, you know, uh, to answer your question first, though, the, the yeah, what crimes were we dealing with? So I, I remember a couple of cases in the late 90s where we, uh, we learned the hard way about certain cases. Uh, there was one, uh, one case I remember with, uh, where the team went in with um, a, a guy had been found hacking using a Trojan horse. Um, uh, I think it was a um, back orifice, which was one of the uh, the common Trojans in those days. And they went in with, uh, um, they, did, they detected where this guy was coming from, the team you know, found the address, found he was still connected to the remote computer, still accessing data on the remote computer, it was all live, the bust was going down really well, they kicked the door down in the morning, or whenever it was, and uh, burst in, and this guy, you know, oh, bang to rights in front of his computer, great case, early days of uh, computer crimes, crime solving, hacking, live hacking case. The guy says, oh, I need to use the bathroom. (laughs) He walks over to the bathroom, flicks the fuse box, that's right next to the bathroom. Everything goes dead. The live connection, the computer—so <laughs> <laughs> much for crime busting. We, you know, but they're, they're those kind of things teach you a valuable lesson. You know, you can't separate the suspect from the computer. You can't let them, uh, you know, have a chance to, uh, to to corrupt the evidence. We had another case where uh, there was a smell—a a burning smell—as we were coming in through the door, and the uh, two hard drives were sat on the gas stove cooking. Uh, melting away on the gas stove. <laughs> what a way to get rid of evidence. Old-fashioned so, way. Yeah, the old-fashioned way. But no, I mean, uh, the, 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 I think the um, as this, uh, you know, the discipline um, matured, computer forensics, we found that you know it's an expensive business. We needed more resources. We needed more people. We needed more training, and. I had a bit of a break in, I think it's around 2003 or 2004, I can't remember exactly, but there was a big murder case, and it's very high profile, uh, and many of your listeners will, will maybe may remember it, a guy called Robert Kissel, uh, the Kissel murder. So he was a leading banker with uh, one of the major investment banks out there, riches, anything, and uh, his wife killed him. His, you know, and you might think, well, what the hell does that have to do with cybercrime? But the whole crux of the case, it could have been you know, a marital dispute, which... Uh, you know, uh, at the end of the day, it's hard to prove the, uh, the, the guilty intent. It could have been a crime of passion, which would have been probably manslaughter at the end of the day, if you can't prove any guilty intent. In other words, killed during a fight. What she did was hit him over the head with a blunt ornament. And uh, it was actually captured the news in Hong Kong for ages because uh, she then uh, rolled the body up in a carpet and had two coolies come and take the carpet away and put it in a warehouse. Uh, God knows how they didn't find anything suspicious about such a heavy carpet. And, uh, but anyway, they did that, and it wasn't for a while later that the body was uh, discovered. Anyway, the reason why cyber was involved or the forensics was involved is that you know she was having an affair with a, with a TV repairman. He was suspicious about this affair, and he'd hired a private detective. So all of these communications, both the affair, both with the private detective, were being carried out, of course, by email. And. There were other things as well that led to the mens rea. She was searching for a, a date rape drug or any kind of stupefying drug like Rohypnol. Uh, she ended up spiking his milkshake, his favourite milkshake. In fact, it was known as the milkshake trial out in uh. Hong Kong it on for months. And you know, all of the searching on the internet, all of this, the fact that he knew and she knew that he knew uh, that she was having an affair, you know, built up the uh, the motive. And it wasn't with, if it wasn't for the forensic, if it wasn't for the ability to tell the full story, and it is a long story, there's been movies made about this, there's books written about this, it's a fascinating case. But if there wasn't the computer evidence, I honestly believe it would have been difficult to prove this was murder rather than manslaughter. And this was such a high profile case and forensics played such a key role, that it really was the beginning of us getting big resources. You know, the, the bosses finally saw that actually computer forensics is more than just catching kids with hacking tools. Right. It can, you know, serious cases like murder and uh, and, and other serious crimes. So that was the beginning, really, when we got very professional within the Hong Kong Police Force.
1: So you know, outside on the Hong Kong Police Force, you've worked with Interpol. I mean, you work with a whole bunch of different agencies running training and capacity building, both in Asia and Europe, right? So you've had insights into these large police agencies. What's your observations on how policing of cybercrime differs from organization to organization?
2: Yeah, th- th- this is a question I get asked a lot as well, and uh, it, I, I don't have a really good answer, but here's my theory on this, George. I think cybercrime in most police forces is driven by one or two individuals, key individuals, and it's, it's kind of uh, a little bit sad in a way because there's so much dependence played, uh, placed upon these individuals that when they leave or go to the private sector or, or, or retire or whatever, then the capacity or capability of that particular organization Takes a real big knock, and it doesn't matter how big or small the 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 police force is or the uh, law enforcement agency is. Very often, you know that that one or two individuals, those one or two individuals, can play such a key role. And uh, you know, we we both be on the side of the corporate corporate world, uh, George, where we've hired people away from police forces. We've hired real top talent. And sometimes I sit back and wondered, you must do the same, you know? are, Are we are we taking away the capability of that? Police force, that agency, no doubt, a away, and does it? You know, just for the sake of improving ourselves in the corporate world, and uh, that's one I wrestle with. I've got to be honest with you, George.
1: Yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, look, uh, it's, when I talk about the Secret Service, the people with cybercrime skills, forensic skills, true, true skill sets in, in, in the cybersecurity space. A lot of people have left the Secret Service and the FBI too. I just sent out a, uh, I just shared a link on, uh, I, I guess a post know. on LinkedIn. Yeah, so another FBI agent left the FBI, senior guy, uh, yeah. in their cybercrime space. So, I mean, it, it, you're right. This this, call, this this presents a big problem uh, to law enforcement, and I think they have to think about the way they do things and uh, you can't just, and over here, it's, you know, we go by levels and grades and, you know, you do so many years and you're this grade and you do another couple of years and you're this grade and then you get paid this. And then I don't think that, that doesn't work in this space, in my opinion.
2: I, I right. Agree. What do you think? Well, there's got to be other models. I mean, one of the things about the Hong Kong police is that once you are gone, you're gone kind of thing. I, I could never give back to the Hong Kong police. I, I feel that, you know, I could come back in there on a secondment or, a, you know, just to really give back some of the knowledge I've gained from the, being in the consulting world and from being in the, in the, in the corporate world. Um, but that just doesn't happen. And I, I really think that management or leadership in police forces need to start looking at more innovations, bringing back secondments, bringing back cycles. You know, there's plenty of people out there who would volunteer to give back if they had that kind of opportunity. I think you're better at doing that in the U S aren't you, George? I think you, you do have,
1: we do, but we don't do it enough. And I was just having this conversation the other day that if the secret service actually brought back every secret service agent that's left for the corporate sector for some type and to to build an organization around just that to share intelligence, to share best practices, you know, just, just the, to help each other and and cooperate when possible, when legally possible, of course, um, uh, I think they could get a lot out of it. They could get a ton out of it. I mean, the information that they could get uh, in terms of just, you know, how things are done in the corporate sector uh, in terms of process and technology and and standards and, and things like that is enormous. Of course, can't share information unless you have judicial warrants and things like that, but there's a lot of other things that you can share uh, in uh, in terms of intelligence models and strategies, and I mean, it's just it just goes on and on. I think um, I think there's a lot of lot that can be done there over here as well, and I think there's going to be a lot of improvement there. Um, I don't know why it's not done. I can't figure it out. I can't. I just can't figure it out. There are believe it or not, there is that sort of uh, culture where hey, look, when you're gone, you're gone. Like that's it. Yeah. Like you know, it's like you left. And but well, what? Well, that brings me to the next one. Why, why did you decide to leave police work?
2: Huh, yeah, well, you know, like everybody, you've got to look after yourself, haven't you, George? And um, <laughs> <That's> well, <right. laughs> the, although having said that, the first thing uh, which may surprise you was that I was in line for, pro- I would have probably been promoted within 12 months of my leaving uh, to the next rank. But unfortunately, in most police forces, and Hong Kong's no different, the, the system doesn't allow you to stay in technology crime. So I'd have had to have been, you know, out working as a, I don't know, as an admin or as a, you know, as some, some kind of other job. In uniform again, not connected in any way to cybercrime. And how ridiculous is that? After having done 15 years of of working in in you know, right from the beginnings of, of cybercrime investigation and forensics, to be moved out just because you get promoted. That's you know it's a dumb reward, isn't it?
3: Really. But that's how you. Know, yeah, it is.
1: That, not only that, all the skill sets that you learn they're perishable. I mean, yeah. technology skill sets are perishable. Yeah, I mean, that's right. you know, and technology changes, especially in the cybersecurity space. Things change very, very quickly, even from day to day. So to be out of the business for a couple of years, I mean you're starting from you're starting from scratch and you come back. I mean and and, and not only that, but they're not really utilizing the skill sets that they have and putting round round pegs and round holes, right? Um, it just doesn't make sense to me. And it, it amazes me that you say that because things aren't so very different in in our two countries in terms of you know how police agencies uh, build their, you know, their their talent models. Um, yeah. I honestly
2: uh, think there has to be a radical uh, shift in mindset. Uh, you know, to, to to become more modern in the way of thinking. Don't don't penalise, you know, because in in certainly in Hong Kong, I mean, I don't know about now, obviously, but in the time when I was there, um, you really had to be doing all the jobs in order to be considered for promotion. So you had to have a variety of, you know, different postings, and and it mean meant that if you really wanted to focus on cybercrime, you were unfairly penalised for that.
1: So let me ask you, if you're still in the police uh, agency today, if you're still a law enforcement officer, what do you think you would be trying to achieve to improve the fight against cybercrime if you were there today?
2: Uh, yeah, so, <laughs> so this, is the, the, uh, this is the key question, isn't it? What, what could we be doing better if, if, if we were still in the police? But I think, you know, it, it's relationships. A lot of this is relationships. You know, computer crime, cybercrime is transnational. And, uh, you know, you've got to build up those relationships. I, I tell you what I've done very effectively in my time because I worked with Interpol and other, you know, uh, when I was in the U.S., obviously, with you, uh, working with the uh, Secret Service Task Force, and, you know, with the Microsoft uh, DCC. All these are great organizations for networking. You get to know so many people, and most of them, you know, in law enforcement. You know, the, the key to successfully solving crimes is to be able to pick up a phone with somebody you trust on the other side of the world hey, saying, hey, we've got a crime going on right now. Is a nexus in your country? Here's the information. Get it done quickly. No, have to wait for a month or two. To right, need right. Legal assistance. Right. How so different that, it is uh, to
1: talk to somebody that you've never <laughs> spoken to before. What kind oh, of exactly. you know, what kind of
2: reaction do you get? <laughs> oh hell yeah! You know, you try calling somebody at cold you've never met before, especially police officer. We're the most untrusting guys in the world. Right? <laughs> 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 so you know, you, you're going to get short shrift from anybody you call up. And um, yeah, that's, that's that's it's all about who you know. And the longer you're in it. I think the more of these connections you have and the better they become and the, you know, the faster you can get stuff done. And that's how the bad guys operate, that's how the good guys should operate. So I think if I was still in police, I think I'd definitely be working hard with all these organizations to be building up that trusted model of sharing, making it faster, making it more efficient, looking to break down barriers and, and you know play the bad guys their own game.
1: All right, brother, we gotta take another short break to hear from our sponsors. But don't go away, folks, we'll be right back with the Managing Director of Kroll's Asia Cyber Risk Practice, Paul Jackson. After these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America
0: account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation many companies think they're protected they believe using a password manager multi-factor authentication behavior-based technology password rotations or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com
4: improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with df lab security orchestration automation and response technology automate threat containment orchestrate incident response and measure operational performance with df labs Inkman soar platform leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time Maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash
3: TF7 to request
4: a look at Inkman SOAR live in action.
0: You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at Taskforce7Radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Riedis.
1: Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our special guest, the Managing Director of Kroll's Asia Cyber Risk Practice, Paul Jackson. So Paul, I want to pick up where we left off on the last segment and continue to talk about your career moves and and some of the things that you've done to pivot in your career because you've had a truly fascinating career path that I think many people will find interesting and learn from. But uh, before we kick off uh, the, the talk about some of your career moves in the corporate sector, you, 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 were, you heard me talking earlier about the, uh, the CSO p- uh, position over at Facebook early on in the, sh- in the show, in the first segment. Well, what say you about that? What's your opinion about what goes on over there at Facebook right now and sort of the perception of their, of their security department?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, George, I'm in line with you. I think I find it quite a biz- bizarre decision, and there's got to be more to it than meets the eye on this one. But I, I, I think the whole uh, the whole view of cybersecurity leadership is critical. Um, and I think what's often missed out is the fact that a good CSO should be a crisis manager and he should be a leader. And I think that, you know, there were a couple of the comments you read out earlier that somebody mentioned that, uh, you know, the CSO should be, a, a, you know, a, a, technical, uh, a technical privacy officer or a, a CTO who can handle security. Uh, but the reality is, are those kind of people able to manage a crisis? Have they got that leadership skills that have, that have you know, been taught through being in a position like you get into in military or in law enforcement or in other similar kind of roles? And I think, you know, the ability, and we've seen, we've both seen this, you know, the ability for leaders to be able to properly manage incidents, to be able to guide their people, to be able to motivate their people is the crucial role of the CSO rather than just looking at it from a purely technical point of view. And I think there's a couple of interesting uh, uh, recent moves being made within the corporate world. Uh, a good friend of both of us um, just started as the CSO of Barclays, for example. And uh, this gentleman, as you well know, comes from a physical security background, That's right. so from a law enforcement background, but mm-hmm. here he is managing managing cyber as well as physical security as well as investigations. I suspect he's been put there because of his leadership skills and his ability to motivate and get the best out of people, um, rather than you know knowing the ins and outs of the technology. The correct uh, you know correct leader should have people under him who's able to explain that well, who's a, who are able to run that part of the uh, uh, part of the house. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that the leader has to be in the weeds.
1: You know, and, um, and I think you're you're right. And I have I have this uh, I have this mentor. Uh, that I, I look up to very much, and he he won't he won't hire anyone the the, CSO, the CISO the CISA anybody he wants anybody that's not battle tested he wants yeah. battle tested people that can handle a crisis that respond to incidents that have you know a, a critical the thinking skills right
2: yeah, that take charge yeah you're right you're right critical no. thinking skills is important and yeah, uh, yeah. I mean it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this pans out because I think this is a model more and more companies will move to rather than you know, abandoning the CSO post altogether. I think the, uh, there's another bank in Australia that have also recently hired a, a good friend of ours, um, but he's from a technical background and he's in a similar uh, position where he's managing physical security, cybersecurity, and investigations, same, same as the, the, uh, the Barclays post, um, but he comes from a cyber background. So it'll be very interesting to see how he manages things. Uh, you know, I think we're all feeling our way into the dark a little bit on this, still trying to find out what exactly is right, but I have a strong belief it's all about the person it's all about the you know the strength of character of that person because at the end of the day if something goes wrong that person's going to be in the hot seat
1: yeah no doubt no doubt so you know, I, I, I was listening to some or reading some of the, the comments and, the, you know, the importance of placing uh, security or implementing or integrating security into the product itself. And I, I think that's very important. I just don't know why you need to eliminate the whole CSO structure to do that. And I was thinking back about, you know, some of the comments that say, hey, it's time to try something else. I got to tell you, you know, in my, in my view, and I think you and I've been around the industry quite a long time right now, it took years and years for the CSO role to develop and actually be taking seriously and get a seat at the board. And now we're actually not only taking away that seat, but we're getting rid of the position altogether. And when you look back at some of the, you know, sometimes, you know, you have those people on your team that just have that institutional knowledge to prevent you from making the same mistakes of the past, just because yeah. you haven't had that experience or gone through it. I feel like we're in the same position right now. I mean, it's like, okay, the time, so we already tried that. We already tried that and it, it didn't work. It actually was worse than, than, you know, you could say the situation of the model is today, if there is such a thing. I think if you're looking at an optimal model, and I always think there's a there's an optimal way of doing things, I just can't see in my in my view, after understanding the, that over the ne- last couple of decades, the evolution of the CSO, how eliminating the position altogether helps your cybersecurity defense and death posture. I just, I don't get it.
2: And the argument that, you know, embedding security into the product eliminates the need for that is, uh, you know, is a fallacy. I think that, you know, of course, every product should have a security embedded into it. Every mature company should be embedding security into their product. That doesn't eliminate the risk of something going wrong or an employee going rogue or some, you know, uh, you know, there's endless possibilities of how things could go wrong. And at the end of the day, you need somebody sitting over all of that. Someone with experience, knowing where gaps have occurred before knowing instinctively when things are going wrong and what to do to address them, to minimize the damage and to mitigate the damage.
1: No doubt. I mean, you can integrate security into your product without eliminating the entire, you know, security organization and the security, uh, uh executive that runs it. Um, yeah. I just, I, I, just kind of, I don't know when I think back on my experience and like, and one of the, hey, and one, and one of the, um, the people that commented on social media actually said that you're only going to base your opinions based on your past experiences and the places you worked and the models that you've gone to. And, and, that, and that's true. And so it's good. It's good. It's a good, healthy discussion. I mean, after you left the police, you moved to a large financial institution that JPMorgan Chase had. How did you find the change? I mean, how did you, did you find it hard to make that move when you, that was a major pivot, right? From law enforcement agency okay. to a major you know, financial institution.
2: Oh hell yeah, George! It was uh, you know it was pretty intimidating to be honest. You know, you've been a cop. I've been a cop for twenty two years, and uh, you know you think, well, how, you know we're the dumb guys, right? We're the cops, um, and uh, you know out in the private sector in these big banks, that's where all the smart people work. Um, huh. Well, you know, I quickly found that I could hold my own in these places, and uh, <laughs> I'm sure you found the same, right? Yeah. And it's uh, you know it was a, it, it was daunting when I first moved across. But you know what? I think all the things I learned all the leadership skills you learned Don't forget, I arrived in Hong Kong when I was 22 years old, right? a kid, and and I was put into a leadership position because in the Hong Kong police you joined as a leader right from the bat. So there I was, 22 years old, managing a team of guys, some of them older than my dad. Yeah, my I dread You know, I've got a son now who's that age. I dread to think of him doing the same thing. And uh, you know, it's a, it was it was a real challenge. You learn the hard way. You learn sink or swim. You learn a lot of skills about managing people and I don't think you quite get that in the corporate world so I think bringing that to the uh, the table was firstly important knowing how to treat people knowing how to manage people knowing how to motivate them it goes a long long way but then also the technical knowledge you know, the skills that we we developed in the Hong Kong police were pretty sophisticated you know we were leaders for a while in the in the training we had people from all over the world coming to attend our, the training courses that I built there um, you know people from the Australian federal police the UK metropolitan police the French police all, all over um, we're coming to attend our training program. So we were pretty I would say we were pretty up there in the Hong Kong police We had plenty of resources and uh, and we developed a uh, you know, good, good quality techniques tools tactics techniques procedures, etc That we were willing to share so I think you know when I moved across the project I was actually surprised by how much I could bring to the table and that gave me confidence
1: so, I do a lot of speaking in universities and I, I, I try to do a lot of mentoring. It's a passion of mine to try to help young folks navigate the cybersecurity profession. And the, one of the common questions I get all the time is, you know, how did you get to where you are today? And, you know, if I wanted to, you know, what would you tell me if I wanted to get if I wanted to have your position one day, what do I have to do? And when I look back at, you know, I was a bond broker first and then I was in law enforcement and then then I was in federal law enforcement and then I went to a financial institution that is not a very easy path to follow these days. And, I, and, I, and I, don't, I don't advise them to follow the same path that I did. I actually give them different advice because it's today's world. What would you do? I mean, what do you tell people? Do you tell people, yeah, we can go to the Hong Kong police to end up as a managing director over a crawl? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I, think, I think that's kind of a unique situation. What, what say you about that?
2: Uh, It is a muting situation. So I do the same thing, George. I go along uh, to a lot of, I I support universities locally whenever I can. And I, you know, uh, I get involved with the community events. I'm still heavily involved with things like the HTCIA, which is the High Tech Crime Investigation Association, which I would urge anybody, any of your listeners to take a look at joining uh, as a great, you know, platforms for sharing. But yeah, I get asked this question all the time, especially from young, young guys. And you know, some of them don't want to be cops. You know, they don't want it because they know that if they join the police, they have to do what, what both of us did. We had to be in uniform for a while. We had to chase bad guys. We had to, uh, do, you know, they, they go, well, can I just skip straight to the technology part? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the technology can I just get right, right? to the good stuff like, that I want to do, right? But, but no, I mean, because, you know, in the police, it's all about learning the ropes first. It's all about, you know. Learning I mean, you
1: the- could join the FBI and get caught up doing insurance fraud.
2: <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, where do you, where do, how do you advise them these days? But what I say is, you know, I try to encourage at least a certain percentage of them to go into incident response and forensics because that's where we're crying out for people at the moment, really good hardcore skill sets. You know, the attraction is often with uh, computer security, learning to be a cybersecurity guy, get your CISSP, you know, become a sysadmin and, uh, you know, work your way up from there. But I, I, I really feel we should be encouraging more to get involved with the investigation of data breaches, cybercrime. Uh, you know. It, it's, it, there's just not enough people certainly out in this part of the world. And in order to be good at that, you've gotta have a passion for it. You can't just wait for somebody like ourselves to spoon feed you, to teach you what you, you need to know. You've gotta go out there and learn it yourselves. There's many good free blogs out there that teach you a lot of this stuff. You just got to spend time. You just got to really demonstrate learning this. So whenever I interview young candidates, I want to see that in them. I want to see that they have got that spirit. They've got that sense of um, you know passion for the subject, and that they're self-motivated to learn it. And I think if you don't have that in the first place, you're probably in the wrong career. So that's that's the way I start with folks. It all sounds great to be a you know <laughs> a managing director with crawl or whatever, right? But to get there, you've got to take a lot of hard yards. You've got to do a lot of hard yards and. Um, uh, yeah, a lot ahead. of blood,
1: sweat and tears go into that now, and a lot of luck being able to get to some of these positions and some of these, yeah. these, uh, you know, jobs that you've had. I mean, just because you join the Hong Kong police or the New York pol- you know, police department or wherever doesn't mean that you're going to be assigned to the, you know, this cybersecurity team or this investigative, you know, cybercrime team. Right. I mean, you're going to be humping it for a long time out there doing street crime, chasing people down. It's it's uh, it's there's a lot of sacrifice, I think, that goes into it. Right
2: there's a lot of sacrifice but boy do you learn some life skills doing that and that's no doubt important. no doubt no so important you know i've seen it time and again and you've seen it time and again when you go into teams that are pure technology guys who've been promoted just on the strengths of being brilliant technologists they don't have the ability to lead they don't have the uh, you know they haven't learned that managing crisis managing people in uh, you know when it's when the times are hard
1: yeah, I mean, when you're on a street in an alleyway, you know, surrounded by three guys that want to hurt you, all of a sudden your influence and persuasion and negotiation skills really, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, come into play and yeah. you, you learn real quick. If you don't have them, you'll find them real quick.
2: Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, funny enough, I, just, I just posted a, on LinkedIn a, a, a recruitment advert because we're looking for people, right? And uh, uh, as my preamble into that, I, I posted a picture of one of the old newspaper adverts, the one I referred to earlier in the show, um, except it wasn't the same one. but. I remember one of those adverts because there were quite a few of them in the newspapers in the UK, looking to recruit people into the Hong Kong police. And one of them said uh, something like, "It's two AM in Kowloon. What a great time to find yourself!" You know, and it, <laughs> uh, it, it just sets up the scene nicely for adventure. And I think, you know, <laughs> That's <laughs> that great. Due, law enforcement, police work, uh, military work, whatever—it gives you that, um, you know, that head start in life. So I would definitely encourage uh, anybody who wants to go into cybercrime investigation, forensics, etc., or even hardcore cyber security, you know it's not a bad place to start when you're young in the military or the police and um, give something back and learn something about life and and then you know but keep those tech skills fresh keep it yeah. you know, keep learning keep that set expectations
1: up. too. set expectations know what you're getting yourself into Correct. right a lot of these a yeah. lot of these kids think yeah. they're just going to go and and take these jobs and all of a sudden it's just going to fall right into place that's not really how it how it happens and that's not how life works but you you left after you left the police, you took a job at JPMC, but it was, what you weren't only transitioning from uh, law enforcement to a major financial institution. You actually took a job in New York for a while. so you were transferring from Hong Kong to New York. and I like to ask you how challenging that was bringing all the things that you learned in Asia and then applying them to the u s. corporate space in New York City.
2: Yeah, well, uh, you know who was responsible for that, of course, don't you? But uh, yeah, <laughs> let's not go there. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> so yeah, that was even more daunting than uh, than leaving the police to go into the private sector because you know I got family here in Hong Kong and uh, moving across to the other side of the world. Whoa, um, yeah, that was uh, you know a bold move. But
1: I could be you know, very convincing.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yes, you can. George. Yes, can. But you know what? Uh, I, I think if you've got that sense of adventure, you've got that. You know, you've you've spent a life. Going into things that most other people wouldn't, then yeah, what the hell? Let's roll the dice, right? Let's see if we can make this work. And yeah, it was a battle, you know. As you can all hear from my dulcet tones, I'm British. I'm not American. I went to work in a, um, in, a in a you know big big, big major bank in, in the U.S. You know, so, um, as a foreigner, and uh, there were always going to be uh, questions asked as to uh, you know why have a foreigner in such a, a, a key critical position you know what I think uh, over the time that I was there we built uh, one of the world's best corporate capabilities proved ourselves time and again and left there with head held high when I returned back to Asia it was a it was a tremendous learning experience dealing with the politics dealing with the challenges that we faced dealing with the um, uh, dealing with the technical challenges uh, within such a large organization it was it was very fulfilling and uh, you know I couldn't have asked for better I really learned a lot and worked with great people of course
1: in your view, what were the key differences in the way that cyber incident response and investigations were conducted in New York as compared to what you're used to over in Asia? I mean, what did you see?
2: Yeah. So, so in Asia, right, we've been very slow to catch up. So I think there's a, even though there's a lot of technically gifted folks, and I think law enforcement in places like the Hong Kong police are very talented and very capable investigating cybercrime. I think in the corporate world, a lot of the issues out here up until recently were just swept under the carpet. So very little opportunity for incident responders and corporate forensic folks to get real solid experience of complex investigations because it was all about remediation, get, up, get the business back up and running and you know, no need for reporting. So this is all starting to change now out here. But uh, you know, uh, that was one of the key differences I, I noticed in the U.S. There were a lot of very talented uh, incident responders purely because they'd had the, the, the opportunity to practice because of the obligations for reporting by the various uh, regulated companies that they worked for. Um, they'd, they'd had plenty of exposure to these cases and therefore had quite a bit more experience. So it was a that, that was definitely something I noticed that, uh, a big difference. But I think that's changing now in Asia. I think uh, the, a lot of the laws are changing, the regulations are changing out in Asia, and they are driving companies to be more transparent when they have a data breach. They are requiring uh, or obliging companies to notify uh, both the authorities and their customers and clients when they do have a data breach. And because of that, they have a requirement to investigate. So we're now starting to see a shift out here, and I think uh, that's why I'm looking for good people. So if any of your listeners are, are interested in uh, an adventure out in Asia, then please get in touch with me via LinkedIn. Uh, but uh, that aside, it's just a, a very exciting uh, you know, sort of field out here in Asia. There's definite growth in this area, and there's definite appetite now to conduct thorough investigations, which means more and more people are starting to get good at this.
1: So you, you moved back to Asia, if I recall, back in 2014. Year I think you were with the, still with the bank for a little while, but then you moved into the consulting uh, after a very short period of time uh, later. Maybe I think it was like maybe a year or something. Uh, you yeah. you can correct me if I'm wrong. But why did you make this career choice? Uh, at from the financial institution back into consulting.
2: This was a really difficult choice, um, but you, you know, as as you're kind of aware, the in the organization in the bank that I was working for, there was a. Prior to my moving across the U.S., things were run fairly independently out in the regions and therefore with a lot of autonomy. Uh, so I started out with a bank in, in in Asia and was able to build a really good forensic capacity out there, um, which was one of the reasons I, uh, I got asked, of course, to come to the U.S. Um, but once that was structured in the U.S., then, of course, the regions became it was hub and spoke. You know, there was it was very little challenge back in the region. So yes, whilst I did relocate um, back out to the region, it wasn't the mothership anymore. It wasn't the hustle and bustle of de- de- dealing with them. Um, you know, the, um, the high priority cases. So you know, I looked for a new challenge, and well, I'd done law enforcement, I'd done big corporate, and I thought time for a, uh, a move to consulting. And uh, yeah, I was I was offered again a leadership position in Asia, which which I found quite challenging, compelling. It's a chance to learn a new skill and to see more. And do you know what? I've not regretted it because it's given me the opportunity to see such a broad variety of problems and issues, and understand how different firms deal with issues. Everyone's got their own way of dealing with things, and it's nice to be able to come in there with the sort of experience that I've got now, and to guide companies and help them along the path and help them make those difficult decisions when they're in when they're in crisis. So, I, I you know I think again it was just a great move. I was lucky; uh, I got offered a good job and uh, and, and I took it and. Uh, and I've not looked back since. and thoroughly enjoying life at the moment in the consulting world with Kroll.
1: So how differently do you see cybersecurity as a consultant compared to holding an in-house position like in some place like Morgan Chase?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people say the same thing about this, but as a consultant, you see so much, but the problem is you're in there and you're out of there once the problem's been fixed and you don't get to see the, the long-term effects, or occasionally you do, um, because we do, you know as a consultant i'm finding this this sort of um there's three broad areas that we work in firstly there's the pen testing you know in other words uh, assessing the security the offensive testing of security for companies then there's of course the breach response uh, when things go wrong the forensics the instant response the reactive side of things and then there's the governance piece and i'm seeing more and more that companies now that they're under these restrictive laws uh, out in asia are, are coming to us for help with governance you know in other words acting as the virtual CISO. Companies or a virtual data privacy, data protection officer for for companies, and helping them to build their frameworks to help them build sustainable security. And actually, I'm finding this quite satisfying because we get to spend longer with the companies, we get to really understand their problems, and we get to help them fix it. So rather than just being a, a simple test of their security or a simple response to a breach, I'm finding these longer-term governance projects actually quite fulfilling.
1: So. You're settled back into Asia right now, and I, I want to get this question in for our Asia audience. I believe we have a lot of listeners over in China. Believe it or not, a lot of people in China listen to this show. What do you see as the major cybersecurity threat from an Asia perspective? What do you see going on in the market?
2: Yeah. So again, I, I'd like to separate this into two areas. <clears throat> so a lot of what's talked about on your show are the national security issues, the espionage, you know, the 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 things that you read about from uh, you know the APT threes or whatever the the these. Um, government, uh, uh, you know, these alleged government-sponsored hacking groups in, in China or in other parts of the world. Those, are, I would say, are a separate issue because I think that by far the biggest problem is still cybercrime. Um, people forget that, you know, people in China, other parts of Asia, you know, Hong Kong, wherever it may be, Singapore, Japan, Thailand, Philippines, wherever it may be, they are all become victims as well of cybercrime and they're not unique, You know, this is, they're suffering the same problems that the folks in the US are suffering. Most prevalently out here at the moment, we're seeing email compromise. So I'm sure you, uh, I'm not sure, but I'm sure you must have spoken about this in, in earlier shows about the business email compromise situation that's ongoing. Um, it is huge, we're seeing case after case, almost you know, uh, three or four a week uh, coming to us for help, where their emails have been compromised, small businesses or individuals, their emails have been compromised and Somebody has impersonated a third party to initiate a wire fraud or an invoice fraud or somehow commit some kind of financial crime through hacking into the email. And that is happening here just as it is in the States and everywhere else. So cyber criminals, they don't care which country you live in. (laughs) You could be living in China (laughs) or the US. It doesn't matter. If you've got money and they can steal it off you, they're going to do it. So I, th- I think, you know, we have to look at it from two angles here. I know there's a lot of anger and a lot of frustration over uh, the espionage side of things, the stealing of corporate secrets, the, uh, the nation state secrets, etc. And that's justifiable. But, you know, espionage is, the, you know, the second oldest game in the book, right? And, well, now that you brought it up, uh, uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know, Hong Kong's a part of China now. And,
1: you know, you and I are close friends and we have these discussions all the time over a beer. So I, I have a pretty good idea what you're going to say. And I think you know how I feel about the topic as well but I want to ask the question for our audience and, and get your perspective on it. How, how do you feel about all the allegations made against China regarding the cyber espionage and cyber crime issues?
2: Ha, yeah, you put me on the spot, haven't you? But uh, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so, so look, I, I don't have any hard and fast evidence, right? But uh, you know, there's a lot out there and where there's smoke there's fire, um, you know, as we all know. But I, I'm, uh, I think, you know, the, the, the fact that all the fingers are pointed at China yeah, there's going to be a, going to be truth to it because espionage, as I just mentioned, is the oldest game in the book, and it's still going on. Uh, every country does it uh, for their own needs, for their own purposes. Um, it's just that you know uh, many would feel that uh, China has been accused of crossing the line and uh, extending this into corporate secrets, into gaining competitive advantages, etc. Um, yeah, look, I, 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 as I said, I'm, I'm at this heart, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a crime guy. I'm a, you know, I, I've been a police officer in, in cybercrime. I've never been in the national security. I only see what other people see on this side of things. Um, yes, I do hear things through the grapevine, through my connections. I've got fabulous connections up in China. I've worked with the Chinese police, uh, for many, many years, uh, in terms of uh, helping them with training and also, you know, just being friends. Uh, And, you know, as I said earlier in the show, being connected to people, Having those uh, networks all around the globe, including China, are priceless when it comes to solving crimes. So yes, I've got a lot of friends up there. They talk. Uh, there are, you know, they're just like us at the end of the day, George. They enjoy a beer and talking about the work they do, and it, it ain't very much different from the work that we do. So you know, you got to remember that, uh, as I said, the 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 espionage part of it is just a small piece. The actual cyber crime part is a huge piece, and there are police forces up and down. China it's a huge huge country that are still struggling with the same problems that we are struggling with to fight cybercrime
1: so to sort of wrap this up you know I like to get your thoughts on the future what do you what do you what do you see for the future in cybercrime when do we start to turn the corner or are things ever going to improve in the cybercrime space
2: I'd love to be able to tell you that things are going to improve overnight, George, but uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm still fairly gloomy on this front. Uh, I, I was at a conference recently with Interpol, and one of the senior figures was talking about cybercrime, and he was painting all these statistics throughout his this talk about how things are getting worse, how the sums of money involved in the thefts are worse, how the impacts of the crimes, of the ransomware, you know, the WannaCry, the, wanna the, the NotPetya's, etc., uh, uh, are just increasing all the time. And I sort of raised my hand uh, at the end and and asked him what you just asked me, really. I said, Do you have anything positive to tell us? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And he kind of looked a bit bemused for a moment. And then he kind of it sank in that all he'd been telling us was gloom and doom. And you know what? It stumped him. He didn't have anything positive to say. And I find that a little bit worrying, a little bit concerning, that we're still at the point where we're just talking about these public-private partnerships. And we're talking about these uh, alliances, and we're talking about these initiatives to fight cybercrime. But the situation doesn't seem to be getting any worse. We talk about these new software capabilities, these new tools. That you know, if you ever go to a cybersecurity conference, you know, you'll see a sea of, of booths all selling you the latest um, silver bullet solution. And yet, companies are still being hacked. More and more companies are getting ISO 27K certified, or you know, COBIT, or or, uh, or um, you know, any any of the NIST framework. They're, they're getting these frameworks in place and still they're getting breached. And I think really what's missing is the fact that humans, humans are behind all this and we're missing the point when we're trying to rely on technology too much to fight crimes and uh, less on leadership, less on thinking about the problem, less on thinking about gaps that may exist in our organizations rather than trying to rely on technological solutions alone. And I think that's where we're falling down. But I think also, you know, this brain drain from law enforcement, the lack of networking, the lack of consistency in terms of who's in these positions. Because whenever I see, you know, police forces overseas now, the guys I used to know have moved on either into the private sector or into other roles. And and the new guys, I have to start building up relationships again. It's very frustrating to keep going through this circle of, uh, of making new new acquaintances. And it's hard. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why we're, we're really losing this battle. We're just not coordinated enough.
1: So, look, it was great having you on the show. I really appreciate you coming on. I know the time difference never makes things easy for us to talk. Uh, It's always just sort of an impediment, but we always work it out. I can't wait to see you again, my friend. Thanks for coming on. Likewise, George. Thank you very much for having me. All right, folks, we've run out of time. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CS hub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
0: Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.